When you came in, the air went out, and every shadow filled up with doubt. I don't know who you think you are, but before the night is through, I want to do put things with you. Say it with me now. I want to do put things with you. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Welcome. The show's name is Politics. Although I call it Politrix and the title of this episode is Poor Things. My name is Presh and uh, that song is called Bad Things. But I changed the word bad to poor. You know. You see, because the title of... Never mind. (laughs) Bad Things was the theme song to True Blood. Very, very dope show and very dope song. It was my favorite opening credits until I... Until I watch Game of Thrones, you know, with the... Like, the Game of Thrones opening sequence would change every week, depending on which storylines we were following. So if... Like, in that episode, we would see, like, John's storyline. You would see the wall in the opening sequence. If we were in Essos or, you know, whatever scenes were taking place in that episode would be shown in the intro, which was very dope. Um... My current favorite is obviously Succession because <laughs> that's the dopest fucking song on earth. And uh, yeah, that's my uh, that's my opening credits uh, takes. Uh, but yeah, also my co-host is not available this week. We actually recorded a commentary to put out. And uh, first of all, I don't like putting out main feed commentaries because they don't do very well. <laughs> but also... Uh, yeah, just commentary overload. You know, we just did the Rebel Moon and Home Alone commentary, so, you know, I don't want to force too much of that. Because, like, yeah, the commentaries are, like, way longer than a, a podcast. So, yeah, let's just uh, get into it, right? So I don't really have any cleanup from last week. I just, not because we didn't get anything wrong, because uh, I just didn't have time to do it. I didn't have time to go listen back to that episode and write down any any little factual errors that I could find. Uh, so let's get into the news, right? The U.S. presidential primary started this week with Iowa and Donald Trump won the most delegates, which is a surprise to nobody, <laughs> right? It would take like an illness or some serious injury or an unforeseen act of God for him to not be the nominee. It's like uh, the best team in the world playing against a lower division team, like... Uh, a Liverpool football club versus like a a Man United. <laughs> uh, you know the big team is going to win, but you know we still need to play the game. Uh, and yeah, I'm a bit shocked though that Ron DeSanctimonious came in second. He got 21.2% of the vote share. I would have thought that he'd come in like fourth or fifth. Because uh, America has this deranged system of primaries where they go state by state starting with Iowa. Uh, then New Hampshire and then South Carolina, as opposed to, you know, most countries where they just have a vote on the same day. Uh, I have no idea why they go state to state, but uh, it gives a disproportionate amount of uh, power to these states because uh, if, you, you know, your politician doesn't get any momentum from the early states, they usually just drop out. So if you live in, like, I don't know, New York or something, 
by the time uh, it's time for New York to vote, your candidate may have dropped out. So, you know, it's anti-democratic, if anything. But, uh, yeah, I assume Ron put a lot of money into the early states because, you know, uh, like I said, you have to get momentum in the early states. That's what Pete Buttigieg did uh, in 2020, and he parlayed that into being the transport secretary. So, you know, <laughs> apparently it works. Then uh, after Meet Boron, we have Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy. We've spoken about Vivek on the show, but Nikki Haley is in the same boat. She knows that uh, she won't win. Both of them are campaigning to become a member of the next Trump administration. The difference is that she's being talked about as a potential vice president while right-wingers are mocking Vivek. Right? Uh, if you recall, when I spoke about Vivek, I said, like, okay, you're trying to appeal to these racists, but they will never respect you. And uh, yeah, there's just been a lot of jokes about him from the right that is like, all right, you'll get a, a job in the Trump administration, dot, 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 working at the subway, you know, and <laughs> for whatever reason in this scenario, there's a, you know, the corporation subway has a, a store inside the White House, but, <laughs> and <laughs> apparently the president, uh, you know, appoints whoever's the manager of that store. But uh, anyway, uh, Nikki Haley is also an Indian person, which... Once again, I've mentioned this many times on the show. Rishi Sunak, Vivek Ramaswamy, Suela Braverman. Indians on the, the political stage are deeply, deeply embarrassing, especially in the West. Uh, in South Africa, we don't really know of any high-profile Indian politicians, but Indians on Twitter almost every day just embarrass us. <sighs> but... Uh, Anyway, Nikki Haley is like white passing. She actually changed her name to Nikki Haley. She had a very like Indian name before that. She's uh, a Sikh, which uh, if you don't know that, maybe you know Harbhajan Singh. He's a, he was a spin bowler for India and he, he wore like a, it's not a turban, but it's like a smallish, a smaller turban where there's like a small, like little ball at the end. I don't know how to describe it, but uh, yeah. She's white passing. Ideolo ideologically, she seems to have a lot of similar opinions to Trump. She's just presenting herself as the quote-unquote smart version of him. Incredibly similar situation to Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders in 2020. Sanders was considering Elizabeth Warren as a potential vice president until she just fucking knifed him in the back, you know, to try become president. So, yeah, fuck her. But <laughs> yeah, and fuck uh, Bernie Sanders, bro. It's I don't know how long it's been, but he still hasn't called for a ceasefire. So yeah, fuck him, piece of shit. Uh, the next story I'm taking this from an excerpt from IndianExpress.com in a story by Shivani Naik, quote or sort of article. David Teeger is a South African batsman of Jewish origin who was removed as captain of the Under-19 World Cup team after an uproar against his statements in support of the Israeli army in the ongoing conflict in Gaza. Cricket South Africa had named him captain in September and retained him after an independent adjudicator appointed by them had defended Teeger's right to freedom of speech post his offensive speech. Subsequent protests, however, made them make a U-turn as they stripped him of the captaincy, though retaining him in the team. 
On October 22, in his acceptance speech at the ABSA Jewish Achievers Awards, the then 18-year-old Tiger spoke admiringly of the Israeli army. Quote, I am now the rising star, but the true rising stars are the young soldiers in Israel, and I'd like to dedicate the award to the state of Israel and to every single soldier fighting so that we can live and thrive in the diaspora, Tiger said. It was said in the immediate aftermath of over 4,000 Palestinians killed by the Israeli army in retribution for Hamas terrorists who attacked on October 7, killing 1,300 Israelis and taking over 200 hostages. Since then, the number of deaths has gone up in the ongoing conflict with Israel reportedly. Reportedly? <laughs> let me, let me uh, retake that. <clears throat> Since then, the number of deaths has gone up in the ongoing conflict with Israel killing 23,350 civilians in Gaza. During a pro-Palestinian protest outside Newland Stadium where India were playing South Africa in a test on January 3rd, according to Crick Buzz's Telford Vice, the slogans included, quote, Tiger, how many doctors did your friends kill today? Question mark. The Palestinian Solidarity Alliance, PSA, lodged a complaint with South Africa's Olympic Committee calling Tiger's views, quote, provocative and an inflammatory political statement. On January 12th, the day after he turned 19, in a press release, the CSA announced that Tiger was, quote, relieved of the captaincy for the tournament, end quote. In the, quote, best interests of all the players, the team, David, and sorry, the team and David himself. It also added, we have been advised that protests related to the war in Gaza can be anticipated at the venues for the tournament. There were concerns that the executive scrutiny on Tiga's Israel stand with the unavoidable and incessant media questions could be another headache for the youngster, as well as open him up to further criticisms and attack with his strident views were he to be captain. He could also distract the team from the World Cup campaign. So, my personal opinion is that this is a free speech violation. I don't really follow cricket, but uh, I'm assuming that the board that runs Cricket South Africa is in some way related to the government and stripping him of the captaincy and re retaliation for his speech is, you know, essentially the government attacking somebody for saying something that they didn't like, right? So I understand why Cricket South Africa might says, you know, it might be distracting, but I just think they should let him face the consequences of his actions. And I don't mean consequences like he should be beat up or, you know, any other kind of violence. I mean, like people protesting outside the stadium with the uh, Tiger, how many doctors did your friends kill today sign? He's allowed to have free speech. And in the same way, people have the free speech to protest him. Right. Also, I probably don't need to clarify that I meant non-violently. Pro-Palestinian protesters are not known for retaliatory violence. Uh, it's actually the country of Israel that does that. And uh, yeah, very short news segment this week. Uh, uh, I've actually been on holiday, so I have not been keeping up with the news. I've just been like... Uh, uh, at the end of the day, I'll occasionally go on Twitter and like see some stuff, but like, you know, I'm not reading the newspaper like I usually would. So yeah, the next segment I want to, I want to introduce this as a regular segment 
right? Where we try to spotlight a leftist project, for example, uh, like a worker-based co-op, any leftist newspaper, pamphlet, or just any kind of literature in general. Or, and this is the main one that I'm trying to get, is opportunities to do praxis. So what is praxis? Praxis means politics in practice, which means like, you know, you can claim to be a socialist, but what are you doing to advance socialism, right? For example, I tutor kids every uh, week, right? I volunteer my time and expertise to help, you know, grow young minds. Well, <laughs> you know, poor kids, that's the area that I go to. It's a very poor area. So what are you doing for praxis? And I would like to point out opportunities to do that praxis. You know, maybe you, you're you not good at tutoring, but you can definitely volunteer at like a soup kitchen where you like help feed the homeless or, you know, there's many opportunities like that. And, you know, if you would like to be spotlighted, please send an email to paceuppod at gmail.com. That's P-A-I-C-I-P pod at gmail.com with the name of your organization, what you do and what people can do to get involved and support this project. <sighs> All right, this is going to be a very, <laughs> very, very short episode because, yeah, uh, I'm looking at it and we're only in 13 minutes in. We already get into the context for the movie, so uh, probably expecting this to be half an hour, a little bit more. But, uh, yeah, it's fine. I'm alone this week, so... Uh, <laughs> it's obviously hard uh, to stretch the time being alone, you know. So, yes, let's get into the context of the movie. The movie is directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, who is a Greek filmmaker known for making unorthodox, bizarre and challenging films to watch. Uh, two years ago, I watched The Lobster and instantly became a fan. So then I watched Killing of a Sacred Deer, Dogtooth and Alps. The only movie I haven't seen is The Favourite, which is <laughs> apparently his best movie. So that's actually a huge blind spot for me. Um, I've seen uh, a lot of people I respect have it on their best of decade list. So uh, it's kind of embarrassing that I've never checked it out. So probably by next week's episode, I'll, I would have watched it and uh, I'll have it in my recommendation section. Uh, but yes... The movie was based on a book of the same name by Alasdair Gray, which I've never read, so I can't really speak to it or, you know, say how it was changed or, you know, yeah. So, um, the next thing is based on what I heard about this movie, I thought this would be a, re a retelling of Pinocchio, but now that I've seen it, it's clearly a retelling of Frankenstein, but instead of a monster, it's... A woman who likes sex? Question mark? What the hell? We're not meant to enjoy sex. Uh, but because of this, uh, I'm sure certain religious people view her as the bigger monster <laughs> than Frankenstein. But uh, yes, this was like a, a thing. Well, I used to go to a creative writing class uh, when I was in high school. Like it was one of the English teachers and she would like you know, give us assignments like write this and do this. And one of the things she said was take a book, any book, and write it in your 
style, you know, maybe uh, turn the book into like a rhyming book, you know, rewrite every sentence as a rhyme or, you know, just take a book, write it in your style. And I feel very much like this movie was, let's take Frankenstein and write it in our style, you know, either the author of the book or whoever wrote this movie. Again, I have no idea <laughs> because, you know, like The Shining, the the movie is far different to the book. So similarly here, I have no idea if this is far different to the book or 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 not, right? And uh, before you say, well, Prince, you should have read the book. Well, listen, fuck you. I'm not a nerd. I don't read books. Uh, in fact, I can't read. <laughs> I just, you know, I kind of guess what's written on the page. Uh, and I'm usually right. So take that, fucking nerds. Uh, <laughs> anyway, can get into my thoughts for the movie. So I think this movie is about questioning the assumptions that we make about everyday life. The device used to convey this idea is a newborn person with no context for the world asking why things work the way that they do, right? Because like, you know, like if you're, you're grown up, you're just kind of made peace with the fact that this is just how life is. But if you are a newborn, you're like, what the fuck is this? Why is this happening? You know, and uh, I think that's a very interesting way to convey that idea. Uh, so yeah, some of these things I agree with. For example, she questions the brothel's methods of choosing who has sex with whom as a metaphor for real life dating, right? Obviously, it's mainly the guy who makes the first move in a relationship and the movie is asking, why aren't women as forward as, you know, men and encourages them to try make the first move themselves? But there's other things I disagree with, such as when she cheats on Mark Ruffalo and asks why having sex with somebody else changes the relationship. You know, uh, I'd assume that this is obvious, but uh, it's hurtful, it's disrespectful, it's humiliating to be cheated on. You know, like, uh, you feel bad. You don't feel glad. In fact, you feel quite sad. So, that's why. <laughs> um, I also think that this movie is Bo's Afraid, but for women, right? In that Bo's Afraid showed, like, what can go wrong in a man's life. And well, if you haven't seen the movie, this probably doesn't make sense. But there's a play in the middle of the movie. And the play shows how to, you know, how the man should live life. Similarly, in this movie, I believe the first part of the movie where she's living hedonistically, that's how people should live. And then the, I don't know, final 15, 20 minutes where she goes back to her original husband. I forget his name. And I don't know the actor's name. <laughs> you know, I usually just say like, oh, Emma Stone did this or whatever. I don't know that guy's name, so I can't, I can't say, right? But yes, so her time with the original husband is what can go wrong in a relationship. And the beginning is what can go right in your life, right? Um, is also appropriate because I went to watch this at the Rosebank Nouveau, which is where I watched Bo's Afraid. Um, it's also incredibly surreal, which <laughs> also it shares also with Bo's Afraid. Um, the other movie I want to compare this to is something I saw Dan Murrow bring up as well in his review, but I just want to clarify that I had this thought independent of him. Barbie is also a naive woman who goes into the real world 
and finds out that it's dominated by the patriarchy and she rejects these societal norms right which <laughs> quite clearly what Emma Stone does in this movie right and Mark Ruffalo is Ken who's immature and you know gets upset with the woman's newfound freedom so very clear parallel well, I'm not saying one of them like ripped off the other I'm just saying very similar story uh coming out within a few months of each other and I truly believe uh, poor things is a far better movie right well <laughs> when we get into my rating I'll justify you know why I gave the rating I did right um I also thought it was funny that the original husband got turned into a goat <laughs> at the end which is somewhat the plot of the lobster which I don't want to spoil but like the plot of that movie is people lonely people if you can't find a mate you get turned into an animal and the main guy is he wants to become a lobster so that's something what happened here that guy he didn't become a goat he just has the mind of a goat and it made me think of the lobster <laughs> so yeah they're very funny uh also thought uh well i've so- seen some discourse online that it's a peter felix situation because she's mentally a child and i i disagree this is a sci-fi movie right this is not representing the real world at all this is um you know we're told that her brain is rapidly developing into an adult we're not given a timeline but she only begins thinking about sex like 30 to 40 minutes into the movie it's uh i think we're meant to believe that by the time we meet her she's like a teen and by the time she runs away with Mark Ruffalo she's like in her 20s that's my uh thinking about it i i honestly have no idea but yeah there's also like a religious indoctrination angle on this right william defoe's character is named godwin and emma stone calls him god you know uh speaking about choice in this movie she never chooses to be in a religious but she has this relationship that resembles religion with her creator godwin in this case whereas you know the average religious person it's with god so <laughs> no it's not very this is like baby's first symbolism you know <laughs> you shouldn't uh, i you shouldn't need me to say this uh yeah uh the next thing is when she sees the people living in pop- poverty she has this extremely negative reaction as even with a child's brain she can recognize what a disgrace it is right just a small aside there's a road in joburg where where i live right and on one on one side of the road you can see this poverty stricken township called alexandria which by coincidence is the same name as the place emma stone sees the poor people or unless uh yorgos lanthimos came to south africa and <laughs> he also saw this road where on the one side is alexandria and on the other side of the road is a city called santon it's an extremely opulent and bourgeois area right my uncle once uh, referred to it as the quote unquote new york of africa which uh <laughs> okay <laughs> um uh where am i i remember being a child and looking from side to side and wondering like 
Why is one area so built up while the other area was effectively a slum? The road is like this monument to inequality, which, uh, yes, South Africa, the number one most unequal country on earth, which, we're number one, we're number one, we're number one. <laughs> um, yeah. I think the movie is saying that this idea of fairness is a natural thing and inherent even in children. It's, it's, you know, that's how things should be without the indoctrination of society coming into it, right? Uh, Bella or Emma Stone is so naive that she thinks that simply handing over money is going to solve the problem. This is what real life people think. They donate to a charity and think that it's enough while certain charities are money money laundering schemes and don't do actual good with those donations. I'm not saying like, oh, don't donate to charity. I'm just saying, first of all, be, be careful which uh, charities you donate to. And second of all, like I mentioned with the praxis, it's uh, voting and donating money is not enough. You need to organize. You need to donate time. You need to make an effort to build up socialism if you want that to happen, right? It's not just going to happen. Speaking of which, <laughs> later on in the movie, she learns about the virtues of socialism from her, her I want to say co-worker, <laughs> but you know, the, the other prostitute at the brothel. And uh, that is an actual way to affect change. So, you know, Yorgos Lanthimos telling us... Uh, He's the new Lenin. <laughs> His movies are going to inspire a, a new Soviet Union, but uh, a worldwide one. And uh, you know what? Fair enough. The next thing is this movie is gorgeously shot, but it's also extremely interestingly shot, right? There are plenty of gorgeous movies that are shot in an orthodox way, but the cuts to the wide islands is, uh, they just give you the sense of unease. Like she's being watched, you know, like very much like a Hitchcock movie. It turns the viewer into a voyeur. And, you know, obviously most notably when Emma Stone is having sex, it's, uh, you know, that scene with her and Mark Ruffalo, uh, Mark Ruffroof, hello. <laughs> they, uh, it's, it's very much like the scene from A Clockwork Orange where it's just like, Fucking, fucking, <laughs> fucking, <laughs> right? Um, next thing is the score. Especially the violence is incredible, right? Um, it adds this haunting tone to the film. This is theoretically a comedy, but the music indicates that it's a tragedy. That being said, the movie is hilarious, right? You know, I'm not definitely not saying, oh, it's not a comedy or something of that nature. Uh, uh, just similarly to Oppenheimer, there's so many times where I burst out into laughter uh, while the rest of the theater was quiet. So maybe it was just me that found this movie hilarious, but uh, <sighs> nevertheless, that's my my opinion. Oh, so I'm not allowed to laugh when I think something's funny. Well, cancelled once again for my for my leftist viewpoint. Anyway, <laughs> the production design, also phenomenal, right? The costume, set design, CGI, all extremely unique and give this dreamlike world, right? This is ostensibly set in the Victorian era, 
but with far more advanced technology than even today. And I thought the production design did a great job of imagining what that world would look like. Uh, you know, even the skyline with the weird CGI kind of felt appropriate for this world. Like the the skyline and the, the sea, it's uh, all very well done. Then uh, the next thing, which is the big buzz that I heard about this movie is the acting, right? And the two names that were thrown about was Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo, right? And, you know, <laughs> I've been hearing that they're the favorites for uh, the Oscars in their respective categories. And I think that is half true, right? Emma Stone is the phenomenal standout. She's actually my co-favorite for Best Actress at the Oscars with alongside Carey Mulligan right now. Ruffalo's accent is far too distracting to me, especially since it drops in and drops out from time to time. You know, I still like the physicality and timing of his jokes and, you know, his performance in general, but that accent is just... Whew, too much, bro. It's, I guess it's supposed to be English, but... I don't know, it didn't work for me. Sorry, and I'm seeing a lot of people praising him, but I just didn't get that. You know, like I said, it's still a very good performance, but it's not <laughs> like a game changer, you know? Uh, what Emma Stone is doing in this movie is like next level, right? And this guy is just, he's good, but it's not, you know, <laughs> I feel like I'm saying the exact same thing. So the performance that really took me surpri by surprise was Willem Dafoe. I don't know if it's Oscar worthy, but I was really taken every time he was on the screen, which not a lot of time, maybe it's like two hours long and he was in it for maybe like half an hour, 40 minutes. So yes, whatever time we did have with him, I was quite, quite happy, quite happy. Not, not sad, glad. I was glad. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so, in conclusion, I gave the movie a 9, because of technically well-made it is, but there's still something missing, you know, I I just can't quite art articulate it, I could, you know, like, uh, as I'm going through my thoughts of the movie, it's just, again, technically perfectly made, but there's just something I don't like about it that's just rubbing me the wrong way, so perhaps on rewatch, like, uh, when I watch it at home one day, or I might bump it up to a 10. But for right now, it's a 9. Uh, so yeah, that's my Poor Things review slash analysis. And I, okay, uh, <laughs> I want to introduce another segment, but this is not a recurring segment. This is a once-off segment, which is the Better Call Saul segment. Why am I doing this? So the Emmys happened this week, and... You know, instead of having an Emmy segment, I thought we should do a Better Call Saul segment because Better Call Saul was nominated for 53 Emmys and never won a single one, which is an absolute crime and I think reflects far more on, far more poorly on the Emmy voters than it does on Better Call Saul. So I thought it'd be nice <laughs> uh, to go back and relitigate the ones that I think should have won in the outstanding drama category because, you know, like, I'm not going to go back and think about, like, the set design 
for Better Call Saul season one versus whatever, right? I'm just thinking about overall kind of thoughts, ideas. So it was nominated for Outstanding Drama every year in its seven season run. And its first season lost to Game of Thrones season five, which is the first award it should have won, right? Seasons one through three of Game of Thrones are perfect television. Season four is great, but you can see the bad tendencies creeping in. Like they uh, start to lean on catchphrases and it becomes a lot of style over substance, right? Like the first three seasons are about political intrigue and about the characters and, you know, top tier acting. And then, like I said, from season four onwards, it becomes these gimmicks about like, oh, I drink thing, I drink a lot and I know things. I know that didn't come on in season four. I'm just, uh, I'm saying season four set the stage for things like that, right? Uh, season five is just as good, but it's clearly in decline. Season six is the worst. And then seven and eight are the same level as five. Season eight obviously gets the most hate because that's when the chickens came home to roost, right? <laughs> but I believe that the rot set in much earlier. Uh, also, if I'm looking at the rest of the... The TV shows that year, season season seven of Mad Men was out, and I'm gonna be honest, the latter seasons of Mad Men didn't know what to do. Like they were just, I think by season four, it was over. But the later seasons is just them meandering and like really not knowing what to do. So yeah, definitely it should have won in I think 2015. I don't know when that. that ceremony was held uh, so season 2 lost to Game of Thrones season 6 which season six, which as I mentioned was not good but uh, unfortunately Better Call Saul would not have won as Mr. Robot season 1 came out that year but it would honestly be like a, a dead heat between the two you can't ask me to choose between but <laughs> I guess I did choose by saying Mr. Robot, but <laughs> I'm saying it's very difficult to choose. That's that's what I'm getting at. Um, for its third season, it lost to The Handmaid's Tale, which I can't comment on. Actually, I don't know why I said that. I'm definitely going to comment, right? Um, if I had to hazard a guess, this was... Wait, sorry, sorry. Let me reel it back. I can't comment because I've never seen The Handmaid's Tale, right? <laughs> but I can hazard a guess as to why it won, and that guess is that it was in reaction to Trump, right? This ceremony took place in the first year of his presidency, and The Handmaid's Tale is about feminism, right? So I'm assuming the Emmy voters thought that they were sticking it to Trump, you know, by uh, a feminism show winning the best Emmy, right? <laughs> Which, as we all remember, it worked the next day after the Emmys. He resigned in shame and, you know, he gave up the presidency to Hillary Clinton. <laughs> so, you know, good job, Emmy voters. You've you've done it again. You've <laughs> And again, this is just me speculating. I have no idea. Uh, Handmaid's Tale might be the best show ever made. But uh, I'm not watching that bullshit. Fucking hell. <laughs> right. Um, so season four of Better Call Saul. Uh, lost to the final season of Game of Thrones, which, you know, even though I just said now that I think season six is worse than season eight, it's the most universally reviled seasons of TV in history, right? People, 
it was the most popular show on TV for so many years. And then the way that people just turned against it because of that season. And you're telling me it won. <sighs> but yeah. Uh, so that's the second time they should have won. And in both cases, Game of Thrones won ahead of uh, Better Call Saul. Then the 2020 ceremony is the toughest, toughest one for me. My top three shows, and they change in order depending if, you know, when you ask me, are Mr. Robot, Better Call Saul, and Succession. And all of them released absolute banger seasons that year. Um, Succession won the Emmy, but uh, unfortunately for Better Call Saul, I'll give it to Mr. Robot Season 4 because Mr. Robot Season 4 is its best season, first of all. Second of all, that's how you end the fucking show. <laughs> hello, Mad Men. Hello, Sopranos. Hello, uh, Breaking Bad. Hello. Hello, Better Call Saul, right? Mr. Robot Season 4 is how you end the show. I think the only thing that might be better or on par is Succession, which is why, <laughs> you know, which is why it's, you know, one of my top three shows. So, yeah. Season 6 of Better Call Saul was split into two, uh, a 6A and a 6B, and both of them lost their respective years to succession, which, <sighs> very tough, right? I think Better Call Saul should have won for 6A and lost the other for 6B, <laughs> right? Because like I said, season 4 of succession, the final season, incredible. Some of the best TV ever made, right? Um... So at minimum, that's three outstanding drama Emmys that they were denied. Not to count, like, Rhea Seahorn as uh, Kim Wexler, who was just robbed almost every year. Uh, yeah, so like I said, there's 53 different Emmys that they never won a single one, which it's it's kind of shocking to me because Breaking Bad was such a a media darling. And then Better Call Saul, which I think is the far better show not getting even a single amount of that same prestige or, you know. The only thing that I think Breaking Bad has over Better Call Saul is that Brian Cranston is a better actor than uh, Bob Odenkirk. So, yeah. Anyway, Vince Gilligan said that the only spin-off that he's in interested in making is a Kim Wexler show, and... I would be so down for that, right? Just get rear Sihon, set it in between. Oh, should I spoil Better Call Saul? But at the end, something happens to him and she goes off on her own. And I would be, <laughs> I would be so down to see that and just the Breaking Bad universe just continue. So yeah, that's the end of the Better Call Saul segment. Then I want to get into recommendations for the week. All right. First thing is the end of the curse, which is not what uh, was placed on me by a witch when I was a child. It's the TV show by Nathan Fielder and uh, Benny Safdie. And it ended in an incredibly surprising way, which has rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I thought it was a great show. It just has some pacing issues and like... Yeah, that's really it. It's just the pacing. The the acting is phenomenal. The themes, the 
the set design, the <laughs> the comedy, <laughs> fantastic show. But yeah, I think this could have been done in like six episodes. But it, what is it, ten episodes? So just a lot of filler, and like I said, that causes pacing issues. So I gave it an eight out of ten. Which uh, this is a limited series, so I don't think it's coming back. Um, next thing I have is Fargo. Season 5 also ended this week and also in a sort of surprising way. Uh, the penultimate episode promised us this big battle. But the ending was, you know, small and more character based. Which I actually liked far better than a big battle, you know. Uh, the characters in the show is what it's about. Uh, the characters and their interactions and... Uh, yeah, it's. I don't think Fargo's ever been about like a big battle or something like that yeah so I I gave it a 10 this is the strongest season in quite a while I didn't really like seasons 3 and 4 uh, so yeah I don't even like season 2 that much you know I heard a lot of people have season 2 as like a, an all timer season but yeah 1 and 5 are my, the two best in my eyes uh then I watched the finale of Reacher. So three shows that ended this week. Uh, Reacher is a Mary Sue, which uh, if you unsure what that is, it's somebody who has no weaknesses. It's like he'll be surrounded by 10 guys and he'll headshot nine of them and he'll be waiting with the gun uh, with the 10th guy. And the tenth guy will be, you're like, please, please don't kill me. And he'll say a quip and then bang, dead. And it's like, <sighs> yeah, like I said, he has no weaknesses. His only weakness will be like, ah, oh, I just love too much. Or like, oh, I just, uh, I trust my friends and support them too much. You know, it's like <laughs> superficial weaknesses that are actually strengths in the long run. Um very poor like I like the fighting but the storyline is so poor it's so like just 90s reactionary style actually not even the 90s it's like an 80s movie put into a TV series it's like Alan Richardson wants to be the new Sylvester Stallone that's just think of any rubbish Sylvester Stallone movie from the 80s or 90s and that's what Reacher is a lot like uh yeah I'm somewhere... And the thing is, the first season wasn't really like that. The first season was way better. So, yeah. Season 2, I'm somewhere between like a 5 and a 6. Really not good. Every week I was like... Oh. Um, and, yeah, sorry. He has a team now. So, not only is he the best, he has a team of people who are also the best. But he's the best of the best. So, you know, in case you are wondering if he's not the best, don't worry about that. He's definitely the best. <laughs> um, then I watched Crisis on Infinite Earths Part 1. Right? Uh, it's an animated DC movie telling an adaptation of their biggest ever story. Which, uh, I don't know how much you know about the history of comics, but, like, when they were started, it would just be like, you know, assume that it's all in one world. Then, 
like uh, characters got rebooted, like uh, Jay Garrick the Flash was replaced by Barry Allen the Flash. Uh, Hell Jordan, no, sorry, sorry. Alan Scott Green Lantern was replaced by Hal Jordan, etc. So DC wanted a way to combine these universes. So they did something called The Flash of Two Worlds, where we find out that Jay Garrick, uh, Alan Scott, all the like older superheroes who were in Justice Society is on Earth 1, and on Earth 2 is the characters that we've been following, like Barry Allen, you know, etc. But then this gets out of hand, <laughs> right? They keep introducing new universes and everything just got too unwieldy. So to reel everything in, they did Crisis on Infinite Earths, which streamlined the the DC continuity for a while <laughs> until it got out of control again. And that's kind of the problem uh, DC and Marvel have been having in the past couple of years. They just keep rebooting because it gets too unwieldy and... They can't get new new readers in because it's too there's just too much to read. So yeah. Anyway, the, <laughs> sorry, I got way off track. The movie itself is just kind of fine. It's not really that interesting and it's a lot of setup for something else. So I'm kind of waiting for part two or I don't know how long this is going to go for because I don't know if they can wrap this all up in one more movie. So there might be a part two and three. But once everything's done, then I think I can get a a better view of it. And uh, yeah, the next thing we have here is season four of True Detective. And uh, my friend, he told me that he believes True Detective Season 1 is the best one season of TV ever made. And I find it hard to argue with him, <laughs> right? That that first season of True Detective is perfect in every way, right? You just had everyone just tuned up to 10. You know, I was actually speaking about uh, The Social Network maybe a few months ago now, but I said Fincher was directing at the, the height of his powers. Um, who's that dipshit who wrote The West Wing? Uh, Sorkin. Sorkin was at his best. Uh, Garfield and Jesse Eisenberg were giving all-timer performances. It's like, oh, Atticus Ross and... Fuck, what's the... No, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, they, they were on one when they were making that soundtrack. So everybody was just you know, fucking killing it, dude. So <laughs> that's how I feel about True Detective Season 1. Just an undeniable masterpiece. Uh, seasons 2 and 3 are good. I like them a lot, but definitely not in the same stratosphere. Season 4, I think, has a lot of potential. So, you know, I'm very interested to see how it turns out. It, it seems like they're... Well, there's a new writing team and just an entire new team behind True Detective Season 4. So I'm quite interested to see how it turns out. Uh, yeah. The next thing I watched is the TED series. So there's a new series about the talking bear TED created by Seth MacFarlane. And it is far funnier than it has any right to be. Right. Um, 
I thought the first Ted was hilarious and then Ted 2 wasn't as good. So this is a huge step back up for the franchise. Uh, I gave it an 8 out of 10. But uh, I would like to say that it's a lot like Family Guy. Like, uh, you know, like uh, when you get into a scene, they play like a intro music for that scene. Like a da-da-da-da-da-da. And then like the, the scene will continue. It's exactly the same music as the Family Guy music. And the dynamics of the household are also very similar to uh, Family Guy. So, <laughs> you know, not very creative if you're using a lot of plot. I mean, a lot of structure from your other show to put in here. But incredibly funny show, <laughs> right? I had such a ball with it. Uh, and yeah. Finally, I watched the bear, right? Uh, going from one bear to the other. Uh, I found out why it's called the bear. I assumed... <laughs> I, I heard it was about a restaurant. So I assumed, like, a polar bear gained sentience and started uh, cooking at that restaurant, but apparently not. His surname is... Berzini or Berrazano or something like that, where... They call him the bear because that's his surname, the first part of his surname. So, yeah. Um, yeah, what is it actually about? This guy's a former gourmet chef and he... Uh, his brother commits suicide. I don't think that's a spoiler. Like, uh, I think that's in the very first episode that, like... Yes, and he's decided to take over his brother's older restaurant and... Yeah, just, again, phenomenally acted... Um, I haven't seen season two yet, which I've heard is even better than season one, but the main three characters all won the, uh, the Emmy for best performance in their respective categories. Jeremy Allen White won best actor, Ayo Itaberi won best actress, uh, Ibon Moss Bakrak won, uh, best supporting actor, so, you know, very excellently acted show very well written very well shot you know <laughs> but there's just something missing <laughs> you know i i felt the same way like as i mentioned in the poor things uh review earlier in this part uh there's just something missing that i can't put my finger on where i'm like ah, i love this but there's just something that's stopping me from giving it a 10 right so Currently, I have The Bear as a 9 as well, but maybe Season 2 will put it over the top and give me a 10. So, yeah, those are my thoughts. Uh, can we, yeah, I going to get to the ending now. So, thank you for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, give a like, etc. Uh, importantly, it needs to be a 5-star review. Uh you know, I just say that, but give us one star. <laughs> we need the interaction, you know. <laughs> give me give me zero stars. I don't care. Just uh, comment, like, subscribe, do, do all that, you know. Also, please subscribe to our Patreon. That's actually the most important. <laughs> to listen to our movie commentaries, uh, you can find all our links at paysipper.com. That's P-A-I-C-I-P.com. Uh, please tell a friend. Tell that friend to tell a friend. Tell a family member. And, uh, yeah, goodbye. Ah!